came upon his church outpoured in sound of wind and sign of flame they spread his truth abroad Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, my dear friends, in Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we celebrated what I think you could consider the forgotten Christian holiday, Ascension. We're going to continue that theme this morning, and celebrate who I think we could probably call the forgotten Christian God, the Holy Spirit. If I were to ask you, what what does the Holy Spirit do for you, what would you say? It's kind of hard, isn't it? Jesus is easy. Jesus loves me. This I know. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. The Father is even easy. He created us. He he provides for us. He has a plan for us. But the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Maybe your plans would, or your prayers would sound something like this. Uh, God the Father, help me. God the Son, forgive me. But the Holy Spirit? Well, do whatever it is that you do. But the Holy Spirit cannot be unknown to us. Because the Holy Spirit is God. So to believe in the one true God is to believe in God the Holy Spirit, along with God the Father and God the Son. And the Holy Spirit does amazing things for you. If you want faith, then you need the Holy Spirit. If you want stronger faith, you need the Holy Spirit. If you want to make it to heaven, you need the Holy Spirit. If you want power to forgive your ex, patience to wait for a cure, courage to witness to your boss, compassion to love your annoying neighbor, you need the Holy Spirit. So let's take some time this morning to remember God, the Holy Spirit, and the work that he does for us. Our gospel reading from John 15 and 16, of course, is part of a larger section which we've really focused on the past couple of weeks. This is part of what could be called Jesus' upper room discourse. John chapters 14 through 16 records the words Jesus spoke to his disciples on Monday, Thursday evening, the night before Jesus was crucified. And as Jesus is talking and teaching his, talking to and teaching his disciples, He keeps coming back to these two main points. One, I am going away to the Father where you will see me no longer. And two, but, but I will send the Holy Spirit. Here's how Jesus put it in our text. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, who is that Counselor? The Spirit of Truth 
who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And here Jesus teaches us the first and very important uh, facet of who the Holy Spirit is. Jesus says he is a person. And maybe we take that for granted, but, but listen to what Jesus says. The Spirit whom I will send, the Spirit who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And I bring this up because I oftentimes hear people describe the Spirit as though he was some sort of impersonal power. You know, sort of like he's the force on the Star Wars. And so we see a mature Christian and we say, oh, the, the Spirit is strong with that one. But power, force, these things, the, these are its. But Jesus says the person is, a Holy Spirit is a he. He's a person with thoughts and plans and desires and feelings. He is just as much a person as Jesus is a person, just as much as you are a person for that matter. No, it doesn't mean he has a physical body, but neither do the angels. And when we picture and envision the angels, don't we view them as being these individual, unique, spiritual beings? So it is with the Holy Spirit. He is a person. And, Jesus says, he is a person who is sent by Jesus from God the Father. We heard this in our text too. Jesus said it twice, in fact. He said, I will send you the Holy Spirit from God the Father. And whether or not you realize that we confess this simple truth every time we speak the words of the Nicene Creed. When confessing our faith about the Holy Spirit, we say, He proceeds from the Father and the Son. He goes out from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is perfectly submissive to the Father and the Son. He submits to the Father's will and plan, and he goes out to carry out that will and that plan at the command of Jesus Christ. But why? Why does Jesus send his Spirit? Well, Jesus tells us, It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. First of all, Jesus says the Holy Spirit says of the Holy Spirit, everything that he does is for your good. Jesus says, it's for your good that I am going away and sending the Spirit. That's important to remember, both because of the name Jesus gives the Spirit and, and what Jesus says the Spirit ultimately does. Jesus calls the Spirit Counselor here. But maybe you remember a different name from a, a different translation of the Bible. You see, different translations translate this name that Jesus gives the Spirit differently. Some have, as we do here, counselor. But others have helper or comforter or advocate or even guide. It's almost an impossible word to translate. In Greek, the name that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit is parakaleo, paraclete. And in fact, some older translations, maybe you remember this name, paraclete. They just leave it there because there really is no perfect translation for it. But, 
And while that's perfectly fine to do, to leave the word paraclete in there, it, it doesn't do us much good when it comes to what is Jesus trying to teach us here about the Holy Spirit by giving him this name. Because if you look up the word or name paraclete in the dictionary, all you're going to get is this. It's a name for the Holy Spirit. And the reason it's so difficult to understand and wrap our heads around and translate this word is because it describes who the Spirit, the spirit is. It doesn't describe so much of who the Spirit is, but what He does. The title is a compound Greek word from two words, para, which means away from, and kaleo, or klet, which means to call. So a paraclete is someone who calls you away from something bad, calls you to his side, puts his arm around you, and gives you what you need in that moment. So how you translate it completely depends on what he's calling you away from in that moment. So if the Holy Spirit is calling you away from sadness or depression, he's calling you to his side to lift your spirit, then you might call him Holy Spirit the Comforter. If he's calling you away from ignorance or, or spiritual confusion, you don't really know who God is or his plan for your life. He's calling you by his side to enlighten you, to give you guidance. Well, then you might call him Holy Spirit, the counselor or the guide. If he's calling you away from guilt or despair, you're being convicted by your sin, he's calling you to his side to defend you and give you support, then you might call him Holy Spirit, the Advocate. Different translations of a very difficult word, but they all really mean the same thing. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit so that you have someone who is on your side to give you what you need in that moment. And what do you need? What does the paraclete do for you? Well, Jesus says three things. When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, the Holy Spirit's job is to prove the world wrong. When it comes to how we naturally view sin, righteousness, and judgment. First, sin. What is the world's view? What is humanity's natural view when it comes to sin? I think generally speaking, we would probably say, well, we're... We're not that bad. There's always someone who is a worse sinner out there. It's not natural to say, for example, like the Apostle Paul does in 1 Timothy, I am the worst of sinners. No, we say, I'm not perfect, but I'm not the worst. And if that's your view of your personal sinfulness, then the Holy Spirit has come to convict you to prove you wrong, to show you that you are, in fact, the worst of sinners. And you say, Pastor, hold up. But before you go any further, you see, this is why I can't get any of my friends to come to church with me. Because they see church as just this institution predicated on making people feel bad, to keep people under the thumb of the church. And, and you know, so much of me wants to argue and fight against that, but... You know what, I think in some ways that's probably a fair assessment. I mean, do we just talk about sin for the sake of sin? Because then the Christian church is really nothing more than just an institution that is set out to make people less sinful. And while that might sound nice, here's what it ultimately means. You lose Jesus. 
Or at the very least, you turn him into some sort of glorified example up against which you have to constantly measure your life. But Jesus explains why the Holy Spirit needs to prove us wrong when it comes to how we naturally view sin. Jesus said, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. You see, how you view sin will directly relate to how you view Jesus. Let me explain. I was, I was boarding a plane flying somewhere a couple of months ago, and I got on rather early onto the plane, so I got to pick up my seat. I got my aisle seat. I got my feet out kind of in the row, nice and stretched out. I got my earbuds in. I'm listening to my music. People are walking past me. The plane is filling up, and I see this lady come around the corner as she walks in the plane. Our eyes lock, and I know exactly what that means. She comes to my row, and she asks if she can have the window seat. So I get up, I get out of her way, and I proceed to watch as she tries to lift this bag that she has no business lifting. She's never going to be able to pick this thing up and put it into the overhead compartment. And as she gets it up onto her shoulder, and it's beginning to fall over and onto the head of the person in front of me, I reach out my hand and I stop it, and I gently lift it back up, and together we push it into the compartment. And it's a situation where I guess you kind of just naturally expect someone to say thank you. She said a couple other words first. She looked at me and she said, I can do it myself, thank you. And I learned a very valuable lesson that day. The degree you appreciate help is completely contingent on your understanding of your need for that help. If you offer someone help and they don't think they need it, then that offer is going to come off as being insulting and condescending. If you offer help to someone and and they think they need it just a little, just that little extra nudge to get them over the top, then they will view your offer as, as nice. But if someone offers you help and you're desperate, you're terrified, you're powerless to help yourself, well, then that helper is viewed as a savior. We need the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin because Jesus says, people do not believe in me. And that word for believe here doesn't just mean that you know Jesus exists. It doesn't even mean that you believe that Jesus is good. The demons know Jesus exists. The demons know Jesus is good. Now, the word believe here means that you have complete trust in and are entirely reliant on him for your salvation, that you cherish him and his help in your life more than anything else, that you want him in your life because because you know just how sinful you really are. And that means that the help that Jesus offers you, it isn't offensive. It isn't condescending. It's not even just nice. It means that he's come to be your savior. The second thing the Holy Spirit needs to prove the world wrong on is how we naturally view righteousness. Just as we don't think we're as sinful as we really are, flip that around and state it positively, we also think that we're a whole lot more righteous than we really are. What do we, what what does the world naturally think about righteousness? In, In other words, what makes you good? Well, just be the best person you can possibly be. I mean, what more can God ask from you than your best? 
Well, first of all, not a single one of us can honestly say with a straight face that we have done our best with everything that God has given to us and every opportunity that God has presented to us. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, try your best, do your best. That's what we console crying kids with after they lose their soccer game 15 to nothing. Hey, buck up. At least you tried your best. Is that really what we want to be our lasting hope as we prepare to stand before our God and judge? Now, to be righteous, we assume, is to live a good enough life, to do enough good things that you are comfortable with your effort. In other words, who determines whether or not you are righteous? You do. The natural order of this world is self-righteousness. It's how we all function and operate in this life, which is so beyond ironic. Because there's nothing more we as a world collectively agree on and equally despise more than self-righteousness. And yet, that is our only hope for righteousness apart from the Spirit. Which is to say we have no hope at all. This is why Jesus says you need the Spirit, so that he can convict you, so that he can prove your natural assumptions about righteousness wrong. Jesus puts it this way, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father. Now, what in all the world does that mean? Well, we discussed this last week. Jesus is referencing his ascension into heaven. And what is the only reason that Jesus can ascend into heaven, back to the Father, back home, so to speak? Well, it, it's if he has completed his mission. If Jesus is ascending back into heaven, then everything he has set out to accomplish as the world's Savior from sin is done. Which means righteousness is complete, which means self-righteousness is dead. We need the Holy Spirit to pry our eyes off of ourselves when it comes to this eternally looming question of how do I, a sinfully wretched and spiritually dead person, get right with a holy and just God? And prying our eyes off of ourselves, the Holy Spirit fixes them on the only correct answer. How? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus has won and secured your righteousness. This is why he ascends. Because his death paid your sinful debt. And his resurrection is proof that it, the payment was more than sufficient. Through faith in Jesus, you now stand today, right here, right now, forgiven justified, righteous, and holy in God's sight. And we can be confident of this because Jesus has gone back to the Father. The final thing we need the Holy Spirit to convict the world of is how we naturally view judgment. Now, your immediate reaction to that might be, when it comes to the world and, and how we view judgment, might be to say something like, well... The world doesn't judge anyone. We just want to be left alone to live our lives and do as we see fit. And so what the Spirit needs to convict us of as a world is that we need more judgment. 
And I guess there's a perspective. But I would make the case that the world is a more judgmental place now than it has ever been before. Turn on the news. The news, which doesn't even really exist anymore. There's no reporting. That's, that's all dead. Now it's just judgment. It's someone trying to convince you to join them in judging the other side, the other party, the other candidate, the other people, the other group, the other idea. Scroll through your social media account and what will you find? Links and posts and pontifications of judgment. Ask your friend their thoughts on how they think things are going right now in our country. And what will you hear? If I had a million dollars, I would bet every last penny that not a single one of you has a friend who would say something like, eh, you know, everything is fine. It's as good as it can be. I, I just don't want to judge anyone. Oh, they'll give you their opinions and their judgments. I hate to use the words because they've sort of become cliche, but this is what cancel culture is completely predicated on. No forgiveness, just judgment. If we can just judge and purify and cancel out everything that is bad in our society, then what will we be left with? Well, the assumption is that we'll be left with a perfect, or at the very least, a much more superior, vastly improved, and increasingly beautiful society. But follow cancel culture to its logical and ultimate conclusion. If you cancel out everything and everyone who has ever done something bad in the world, guess what's left? No one. Not even you. It is a self-destructing philosophy. You see, here's the point that Jesus is making with this last one. Maybe you don't struggle with either of those first two things that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of. Maybe when it comes to sin and righteousness, you, you, you're, you're, you're totally the opposite. You say, Pastor, I, I know I'm the worst sinner. And I've never once even, even entertained the thought that I'm righteous enough or that I could do enough good things to make myself righteous before God. In fact, I'm terrified because I know I haven't and I won't and I can't. You see, whereas the first two things the Spirit must convict the world of is this idea that we think of ourselves too highly. But this last one now, the Holy Spirit needs to come and convict us of those times and those opportunities when we do not think of God highly enough. I'm just too sinful for God to love. It doesn't matter what I do because in the end, God will probably just cancel me, judge me, and he has every right to. But do you know where that thinking comes from? Jesus says, Jesus says it comes straight from the devil. You see, if the devil can't convince you that you are good enough without God, then he'll fight like hell to convince you that God is not good enough to love someone like you. We need the Holy Spirit to convince us of that thinking because, as Jesus says, the prince of this world, the devil, now stands condemned. Or as Martin Luther put it in his great Reformation hymn, he's judged, the deed is done. Friend, you are not a better sinner than Jesus is a forgiver. You are not better at sinning than, than Jesus is at forgiving. How about that?
and the one who wants you to believe that you are a better sinner. The one who wants you to believe that you should expect nothing from God in the future but his wrath and his judgment has himself been judged and condemned. Where he can judge and condemn you no longer. Jesus has made sure of that. You see, none of these things can be known, can be believed, can be trusted in without the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we might not talk about him a lot, but understand he's okay with that. He is going to continue to carry out God's plan for you by pointing you to Christ as he works on you through word and sacrament. To straighten you out when it comes to sin. To convict you and convince you that all of your sins have been forgiven. To straighten you out when it comes to righteousness. You're not righteous on your own, and you never will be. But in Christ, you are declared righteous. To set you straight, to educate you on judgment. It's done. And you have been judged, forgiven, righteous, and set free. Thank you, Holy Spirit, our paraclete, for calling us away from a life lived without you, for calling us to your side, and for planting in us the truth, which is Christ. Keep us in that truth. Keep us in that faith until life everlasting. Amen.